0: Antarctica is always on lists of, uh, you know, places to go before global warming gets too bad.
1: Is this where we talk about my brilliant strategy to save the polar bears by airlifting all of them to Antarctica and having to meet the penguins? Also, right. fuck penguins. <laughs>
2: Hello. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, joining me today, we have uh, Andrew Prokop and Dara Lind, uh, two of the the best minds uh, in our office on, on political matters. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, John Kelly, new White House Chief of Staff, and his... Um, Efforts to bring organization and coherence to the Trump administration. Which have been pretty successful so far, right? Wildly successful. He's not at all in a Twitter feud with the Senate majority leader. Um, You know, obviously, part of sort of recent news from the Trump White House has been there um, escalating – Twitter battle with north korea um if you if you're interested in like the real substance of the North Korea issue, uh, I would really recommend yesterday 's episode of Worldly, which um, delves into this with some some real kind of expertise on the the military and, and foreign policy issues. Uh, Ezra Klein has a, a great interview on on his show with Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado about sort of dysfunction up there uh, but I think the three of us really want to talk about the the trump White House how that operation is working um What happened to me was uh, I was about to head out the door and go on vacation uh, when we heard that Rence Griebus was out as chief of staff, that John Kelly uh, was coming in. And the sort of immediate takes on that was a a kind of a a general atmosphere that this was welcome, uh, largely because, I mean, Priebus was obviously not effective in that role. So replacing him with almost anybody seemed like a good idea. John Kelly is a general... um, We deliver a lot of deference and respect to uh, the uniformed military in the United States, particularly to its flag officers. And Kelly was also perceived as a real sort of, whether you like it or not, Trump administration success story. And on a lot of fronts, Trump has seemed to be flailing. But I think the general perception is that Trump wanted a kind of harsh immigration enforcement crackdown. Trump has gotten a harsh crackdown. John Kelly... uh, General was put in charge of Homeland Security, and he did what a cabinet secretary is supposed to do, i.e., advance the president's vision without creating too much of a like weird political headaches. So it kind of it it seemed like a good fit, I think, for a lot of people in a lot of ways. Uh, but but Dara, you you actually cover immigration policy, uh, unlike most of the people who were sort of brought forward to opine on White House organization. And I think you've had a, you know, an an interesting perspective on like, what actually happened in Homeland Security? I mean, how were they able to accomplish this sort of effective implementation of the immigration crackdown?
1: Right. So I think it's worth going back to before Trump was inaugurated, when he was selecting cabinet officials, a theme that kind of came up time and again was that Trump wanted people who would look the part, right? He wanted uh, Rex Tillerson for Secretary of State because Rex Tillerson looked like a, you know, like solid diplomatic leader. He wanted these, these guys not only who were generals, but who were the stereotypical, you know, real talk, don't take any guff from anybody, independent minded generals. And That's really a personality assessment. It's not an assessment of John Kelly's record. It's not an assessment of Mike Flynn's record, for that matter, uh, who was kind of in a similar mode. mold. It's mostly a, well, we don't know a lot about what these guys actually did when they were in the military, but when they testify before Congress, they're really combative with Congress. So that makes them seem like they're tough-minded and independent. So that's basically the assessment that anybody had of John Kelly, me included, uh, when he started as Homeland Security Secretary. But what became clear was that Kelly sees himself as a soldier's general. That was something he highlighted time and again when he was being confirmed. It's something that really became a dominant theme in his public appearances, because a lot of what John Kelly did in his public appearances as Homeland Security Secretary was defending the work of the field agents of Customs and Border Protection officials who were detaining people over the weekend of the travel ban, of ICE agents who were being accused of taking these very aggressive tactics to arrest and detain immigrants. And, you know, Kelly stepped very easily into the mold of I just watched A Few Good Men again the other night, and there's a lot of you want me on that wall, you need me on that wall in John Kelly's rhetoric, that there are things that need to happen to preserve the security of America and that any questioning of them in the public sphere is tantamount to undermining the job that these people have set out to do. And so that meant that Kelly kind of came off as a good defender of the Trump agenda, which is one of the things that Trump looks for in officials, right? He wants people who will go on TV and defend him. But it also is very distinct from leading an actual organization when you're just telling your people, you can do what you want, I will defend you after the fact. That's very, very different from this idea that people had when John Kelly got taken into the White House that he was going to tell Trump what he could and could not do. And I mean, there's an unusual
2: alignment in Department of Homeland Security, in the immigration enforcement agencies, between sort of what the Bureaucracy will do if told that leadership will have their backs no matter what they do, and what Donald Trump actually wants to see happen. Right. So that, like, Donald Trump would not want uh, Scott Pruitt to head down to EPA regional offices and be like, You guys are awesome. You're on the front lines of the war against pollution. Whatever you go out and do, we're going to have your backs. I mean, that would be a Trumpy sounding thing to say, but the Policy result of telling EPA officials like the gloves are coming off is going to be like not what Trump wants uh, because he he wants the gloves very much on on environmental enforcement on lots of other areas. If you if you go to um, you know, a lot of the the rank and file people at some of the financial market regulators, and you just tell them like, hey, guys, like, go do whatever. Uh, They're going to just like not do that much. Yeah, just like different agencies have different internal personalities. And the, the sort of backstory of ICE and Border Patrol had been that the Obama administration had been in some substantive conflicts with rank and file members. And Trump Trump, as a policy agenda, wanted to just sort of l- cut them loose. Uh, but he yeah. doesn't – it's not like Trump wants the whole government to just be cut
1: loose. Right. And I think that this also plays into the understaffing problem, right? It's not that DHS is has more people in appointed positions. You know, when Kelly was named chief of staff, there was a big question about, OK, who was going to be the next Homeland Security Secretary. And, you know, there is a deputy in place who was duly promoted, but there are still a lot of other positions in there, including for that matter, head of ICE that are still not filled. But when you have, you know, if you kind of allow agencies to proceed at their own momentum, in most cases, they're not they're not going to, you know, as you were saying, align with what the administration wanted them to do anyway. I just, I spent a bunch of last week down in Texas with Border Patrol Agents. And, like, they don't see themselves, to be clear, as a military or paramilitary organization. They see themselves as a professionalized law enforcement agency. But, you know, on law enforcement as well, that there is definitely a, a strain of American thought, including from President Trump, from Attorney General Sessions, etc., that the real way to allow law enforcement to protect communities is to give them maximum tactical latitude to go after the bad dudes. And so... You know, when you think of Kelly's successes as a matter of taking the gloves off, again, the idea that he was then going to be a disciplinarian is it's not it was not totally unfounded. Right. We have heard reporting since Kelly came into office that he thinks of his job as controlling the aperture of information that can get to the president, that he is putting more restrictions on who can visit, that he's putting more restrictions on who can read, you know, who can send things for the president to read. But it's not that he's. He, he doesn't have a reputation, or if he does, it's not from Homeland Security, of reining in people who don't want to be reined in.
0: But can I just ask, um, for people who aren't enmeshed in the details of immigration policy every day, there is this perception, at least, that Kelly has been a success, so to speak, that you've alluded to. And so how exactly would you define the success he has, or at least why he is perceived as a success? Like, what has he actually done to gain that reputation?
1: So the Trump administration likes to throw out that apprehensions of people crossing the US-Mexico border without papers plummeted in the months after his inauguration. And that's true. They are now creeping back up. And it's going to be interesting to see whether should that upward trend continue, the administration acknowledges that or whether it just pretends that it, you know, whether it just keeps using these now months old stats to make it seem like a success.
0: But is that about fewer people coming in the first place? Or is it about um, some more kind of successful cracking down effort engineered by John Kelly?
1: So I think that it actually is fair to say that a lot of this was that Donald Trump, before becoming elected and before getting elected, before getting inaugurated, and then in the first weeks of his administration, when he was signing all of these executive orders, did lay out this very aggressive agenda for if you come to the US without papers, you will be detained, you will be deported, you will not have a good chance to plead asylum. I do think that there is evidence that people were very wary of coming to the US when they thought that might be the case. And that part of the reason for it creeping back up, especially because a lot of the kind of movement both downward at the first part of the year and now upward has been Of family units, of Central American families coming to the U.S., almost all of whom plead asylum when they get here. So, you know, it's fair to say that there's an element of intimidation there that... hasn't been followed through with policy in all cases, and that's not necessarily John Kelly's fault. There's, a, there's this little thing called international law that really aggressively implementing the Trump administration's agenda at the border would, would run afoul of, and they just haven't figured out how to square that
0: yet. And if the yeah. metric is apprehensions falling, then theoretically, they could just be more people could be getting in, right i mean probably that is really work that way that
1: is theoretically true i mean i could if like if this were the weeds immigration edition i would totally go into the split between the people who are trying to be caught and the people who are trying not to be caught and uh, you know questions of effectiveness rate and all of that but like it's generally agreed that there really are fewer people coming in it's generally agreed that trump's rhetoric and promises that kelly was you know was originally tasked with have something to do with that. I don't think that that's John Kelly's job, but I think that it's. I think that that's kind of where success is being measured. You know, this week there's been a little bit of of noise because it is now coming out that actual deportations of immigrants have been down and. I think that a lot of people, certainly a lot of people on the left who are skeptical of Obama's record on immigration enforcement and felt he was overly harsh, have been using that to say that there hasn't been a big change in immigration policy. That is not the case. I think that it is definitely clear that there has been more tactical aggression in arresting and detaining people who are in the U.S., who have been living here, uh, who may have old criminal records, who may have past deportation orders. Um, There is a big bureaucratic logjam that prevents people from being deported quickly once they're arrested. That is not even John Kelly's responsibility. That's because immigration courts are part of the Department of Justice, and nobody funds immigration courts commensurate to ICE because they're in the Department of Justice. Um, But I think that it's going to be interesting to see whether the reputation that Kelly benefited from over the first six months is something that his successor is going to have to contend with, you know, people thinking, oh, you know, Trump's not really doing anything Obama didn't do. This is all fake news. I mean, I think
2: that this immigration court backlog thing, though, to me is telling and and is the kind of thing that people should have paid more attention to, because the reality is, is that putting in a chief who what they are going to do is have the backs of rank and file officials because the president has decided that on both the politics and the substance, he wants to have the backs of rank and file officials. That's like the easiest thing in the world, right? Like what every agency head wants is for the president to want them to just want to support the agency staff, right? Like Rex Tillerson's job is so hard because the president doesn't want him to just like have the backs of State Department diplomats. So he's constantly in this agonizing situation. But the Department of Homeland Security does a bunch of stuff other than uh, run around arresting immigrants. And, you know, you would want to see, I I think, like the mark of an effective Department of Homeland Security secretary would be making some kind of discernible progress on those things. Uh, We know that the Secret Service in the late Obama years was being uh, plagued with a bunch of like kind of weird misconduct scandals that were raising a lot of questions um there hasn't been some like big secret service reform coming down from john kelly's dhs we had a member of uh, vice president pence's security detail uh got arrested visiting prostitutes in maryland uh, seems to indicate that the kind of issues systemic cultural issues there are continuing um I don't know. TSA seems as terrible as ever. I I don't know whose fault that is exactly, but nothing kind of fixed there. Um, FEMA, very interesting, critical part of the mission. We don't really know at this point. Um, We've sort of benefited from a a lack of, of giant natural disaster. But An area where a like a general, a a government professional, someone who presumably like knows more than Donald Trump about things could have played like a really big role would have been, I think, talking to some people in the agency, coming to the conclusion, you know, the real limiting factor on how many undocumented people we can deport and remove from the country, uh, Mr. President, it turns out isn't how many people ICE and Border Patrol sweep up, it's how many people the immigration judges can move through the court system. So in addition to kind of what you said on the campaign trail, we need to get some funding through Congress to get this done and work it out on the Hill. I mean, this kind of stuff is hard, like getting the political system to focus its attention on boring, kind of like third order funding questions in obscure agencies is is difficult work but like that's the work of an effective government official and i wouldn't say that kelly like failed at that but he also didn't succeed at it right like the 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 help that donald trump needs i'm sort of glad he hasn't gotten it because i disagree with him on the merits but like the help he needs is someone to walk him and his team through like what the real issue is here and like how can he open the floodgates to deportation? Jeff Sessions seems to be kind of plugging away at it a little bit because he knows a lot about immigration policy. Um, But it's not
1: like getting it hasn't gotten done. So there's a point that I super strenuously disagree with you on. And then there's like the good point that you raised. And I I do want to push back on the idea that it would be at all fair to assume that Any DHS secretary with six months is going to be able to deal with what are pretty clearly systemic cultural problems at DHS. Like DHS was never well considered as a department. A lot of the agencies that are there never wanted to be there. There's a lot of duplication of mission. There's a lot of duplication of oversight. It's still extremely, you know, poorly considered as a department department. Jay Johnson was regarded pretty widely as the best DHS secretary who's existed, with the possible exception of first DHS secretary, Tom Ridge, who like had to create this thing ex nihilo. But Jay Johnson spent a lot of time trying to improve operations, improve morale, do a lot of the like unsexy stuff. Uh And was you know Johnson and Kelly are reportedly friends it It's not implausible that, given more time in the in the office, Kelly could have done that. The thing is that that's not really what Donald Trump wanted from Kelly, right? He wanted him around in high profile settings he wanted him going on t v to defend him. I don't know if Kelly would have done a better job given a better mandate from a better president. He did you know a job with the mandate that he had, and that's what Donald Trump considered excellent and you're you're totally right that. The problem here is that Donald Trump needs someone to sit down and tell him, here are the things that you actually need Congress for. Here are the ways that you can get Congress to do those things. It's incredibly clear that John Kelly is not that person. John Kelly has an attitude that is very common in the military of, like, politics ends, you know, at at the water's edge. And he's kind of ported that into his domestic career. He really doesn't like politics. He doesn't particularly appear to respect Congress. He's He was always very frustrated as DHS secretary in meetings on the Hill because he'd say, it's not my fault that these people are getting deported, that you don't want to get deported. It's Congress's job to fix the law. And then they'd say, well, we have these bills that would, in fact, keep these people from being deported. And he would not be aware of them. And then his office would say that because the president wasn't going to sign them, he didn't support them. There's a lot of refusal to engage with this stuff that makes a legislative-executive relationship work that other chiefs of staff have really dedicated themselves to, including Rince Priebus, but also including, like, Rahm Emanuel, of, like, seeing their job as making sure that the executive branch, in addition to what the cabinet is doing, is engaging effectively with Congress. And that's a big problem for the Trump administration.
2: You know, so many of us had a special teacher or professor who who inspired us at some point, who who made learning something special. Uh, And, you know, for people who, who, have that kind of lifelong love of learning the great courses plus is just a sort of an unbeatable buy Uh, their on-demand video lecture series are are based on this idea of of love of learning they reach out to find the brightest minds from like the very top tier professors make it accessible to everyone Uh, so you can learn from inspiring teachers and really anything that interests you and you could do it anywhere uh, from your living room at the gym even on a plane but you know there's no exams there's no like million-dollar tuition. It's lifelong learning at its best. Uh, I've learned a ton from watching The Great Courses Plus, and I know you will, too. Uh, something I, I checked out recently is their their History of Eastern Europe series. I, I love Eastern Europe personally. I, I traveled to, to Czech Republic and Poland as, as a teenager, uh, and it's been great to just sort of, you know, dive a little bit deeper into that region and, and, and learn more about it in a calm, relaxed, you know, user-friendly kind of way. Uh, but they've got unlimited access to over 8,000 video lectures, you know, on everything. I love history, uh, but they got science they've got useful things about photography and cooking uh, anything you want you can stream your videos to any kind of device or you can download them uh, if you've got summer travel the download option is really useful uh so you know i'd want you to experience the great courses plus too so if you sign up today as one of the weeds listeners you get a full month of unlimited access to all their video lectures for free but you have to go to our special url uh, so you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds
0: One of Donald Trump's campaign promises was that he would build a giant wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. And was that in some way supposed to be John Kelly's job to sort of kickstart that process and make that happen? Because it doesn't really seem like if if you did have a share of responsibility for that, that that's been going very well so far.
1: Oh, man, y'all are forcing me into, like, all the defending the Trump administration against charges of incompetence things. Um, DHS in- internally is, you know, is plugging away on the wall. They've, they've set contractors for the prototypes because it's a massive contract. Somebody's challenged it, so the prototypes aren't going to get built until fall. The problem here, again, is, you know, that the White House, instead of being intelligent about negotiating for wall funding, has twice now put out, you know, budgetary documents that ask for a whole lot of money for the wall. Congress has made it clear that it's not spending a whole lot of money. The White House has said, well, fine, then we don't want whatever you're going to send us and we'll let the government shut down. Congress has said, no, you won't. And, you know, the White House is not has not yet bent entirely on the, uh, you know, the next round of funding over debt ceiling authorization in September. But it's, there isn't a whole lot of belief in Congress that the White House is really willing to shut down the government to get the wall built. Could a better chief of staff have figured out a better strategy to get Congress to spend, you know, a billion and a half dollars on this thing that members of Congress who know things about border security don't see as the most important aspect of it? Not clear. To to me, this wall thing, though, right? Like, this is where I think the
2: John Kelly reputation or the early optimistic takes on John Kelly had gone wrong, which is that, like, Kelly was an effective kind of Trump enabler, right? Like, DHS yeah. did a lot of work toward building a wall. What they didn't do was, like, they – they coming into office, they just kind of had this political problem, which was that Donald Trump had ran around the country talking about how he wanted to build a wall. The wall building promise did not really make sense. There was enormous skepticism of it on Capitol Hill. And so what you what you need, right, is like a like a 360 review of like the whole wall situation, right? Like like what are the equities here? Like what what do we as Trumpies like what part of this do we care about? right? Like, are we worried that people will think we're not really tough on immigration? Like, is the wall a campaign device, as Newt Gingrich said it was? Uh, do we have some issue with the contractors, or we're counting on their support? Do we think this is what Congress wants? You know, and like, really, like, assess the situation and develop a plan to achieve some kind of goals. But instead, the whole Trump kind of discourse on the wall has seemed to be built around like nobody wanting to admit that this like offhand thing Donald Trump said a lot because people cheered for it doesn't really make sense even though it's not like on health care or on taxes or a million other things the Trump White House has seen itself as like strictly bound by everything that Donald Trump ever said at a, at a campaign rally so Kelly is like doing what Trump wants, but not necessarily what's good for him. Um, and then I think I, I think that's what we've started to see, right, is that like the new John Kelly era has not addressed sort of the Republican Party's like concerns about Donald Trump and his behavior and his approach to the job. He's just un- like Renz Priebus, it seems like, would annoy Trump by kind of bringing a Capitol Hill Republican perspective into the White House that would bug him. Whereas Kelly has like a nice, like tough guy face and like stands on the sidelines at these pool sprays, and is just like telling Trump that like, it's
1: fine. So I I do want to say that I think that the White House is quietly moving to accept that it doesn't have to be a literal concrete wall and the the, the, ha, has anyone told donald trump that? no, no it, trump said not, it might be see through because right. you could
2: throw a 60 pound bag of heroin on something
1: um, which weeds listeners know is not actually as unreasonable a thing if not for that reason as donald trump <laughs> thinks it is but um you know i i think that the the things that they want congress to fund are actually like largely uncontroversial like levee wall uh which has saved south texas cities from flooding um but you know i think that i think we're all in agreement that it's a little bit ludicrous to A, assess the success of a cabinet secretary six months into a term where his department is understaffed, and B, to think that that success as a cabinet secretary is going to predict success as a chief of staff. What I'm, I think, more interested in is the question of what does it mean that Donald Trump wanted someone who had a personality as a disciplinarian, and who is actually being disciplined? And here's where, like, Andrew is someone who has kind of more understanding of not only the personalities and criminology in this White House, but also how those are actually affecting how policy gets made uh, than I do. I'd be interested in your thoughts about how does it shift the power dynamics of the White House and who has the president's ear or does it to have this person either in charge or at least higher profile.
0: Well, I don't know if there really was a master plan of or, you know, brilliant strategic rationale of any kind behind appointing Kelly as chief of staff. I I do think that it seems to have been as simple as that Trump was ready to get rid of Priebus, as were several of his family members and top advisors. And he moved on Priebus and then he looked around for someone who could replace him and thought that john kelly had or at least he perceived him as having done a good job or at least looking like he was doing a good job and that he had this perception that Priebus was weak and that that was Priebus's problem and that the way to solve that problem is to appoint someone who's tough and strong and that's where john kelly comes in he's a former general he's for the past six months been you know saying a bunch of tough things about the border and and uh, stuff like that but i mean if you if you try to think about it more strategically and you ask what have been the biggest problems of the trump administration so far and is john kelly qualified to solve them one big problem has been that the legislative agenda has failed and he pretty clearly has no real experience or knowledge of how to come up with some sort of way to restart Trump's initiatives. You on wouldn't call for or... a
2: retired Marine yes. general <laughs> to help craft a tax reform compromise. Right. Yes. Like that that doesn't make sense.
0: Yes. And th- you know, uh, I would say a second major problem is this enormous scandal. And I don't really think that Kelly has any experience at helping, you know, crisis PR or scandal politics or legal defense or anything like that. Um, And one thing that he has been doing a little bit is kind of at least trying to cut down on the constant turf wars among white house advisors uh he got rid of anthony scaramucci very quickly and um it's still i don't know how much he can do this white house is just so dysfunctional with so many warring camps but uh it is at least possible that he will kind of fix or or at least um improve somewhat the internal turf wars and then I would say the fourth problem is is kind of Trump himself, his tweets going off message and things like that. And what we've seen this week is that that is something that, you know, uh, the president does not want solved. So, of course, Kelly is not going to try and solve. It's just going to be something he's going to try and deal with to have the president tweeting or making statements about you know it could be any topic in the news derailing strategy messaging uh, and so forth so i I don't really see a incredibly rosy future for Kelly as chief of staff, but um you know maybe he could prove me wrong
2: well, but i I actually think he he can't prove us wrong <laughs> and prove me wrong because here's the thing right so Trump clearly. Donald Trump's ideal version of himself is that he will operate as a somewhat independent force right the the The, the Ren's Priebus concept was to like bring the congressional Republican party into the trump White House to like animate this sort of machine that Donald Trump would sit on the head of and Trump himself was just not like personally comfortable with that right he was he was not willing to be like paul ryan's like figurehead president right he wants to be in the mix he wants to speak his mind about things he wants to set the agenda how he wants to do it um so you have models for presidents like that right i mean whether that's sort of bill clinton in the triangulation era or it's dwight eisenhower in the 50s you have presidents who sort of you know uh cut loose from their their congressional parties and and do their own thing. But Trump has like two like huge problems there. One is that he's he doesn't know anything about public policy. So he can't drive an agenda that's independent of congressional Republicans agenda, because he couldn't formulate ideas, right? And Bill Clinton really did not have that problem. The Bill Clinton White House was perfectly capable of like, drawing up little schemes to do this or that, or conducting negotiations at arm's length with both parties, congressional leaderships, because Bill Clinton himself was like a longtime governor of Arkansas, had a policy want kind of personality. And he had a big staff of guys like Bruce Reed and Gene Spurling. And substantive experts to, to do that stuff. And then Trump's other problem is that he's, he's corrupt, like insanely corrupt. And he has this hotel in D.C. There's this is Washington Post article about how their room rates are like triple any other luxury hotel in the district. So they're empty all the time. But Trump's cabinet secretaries and big lobbyists keep like paying these inflated fees because they're trying to bribe the president. Dwight Eisenhower... Could operate independently of the Republican Party base because he had won World War II and had like an unimpeachable public uh reputation. But Trump on both of these fronts, he needs Congressional Republicans to be in his corner because he needs their protection and he also needs them to like give give life to his agenda.
0: And I would also say he needs Republicans to keep control of Congress. Right. Donald Trump's electoral fortunes and the Republican Party's electoral fortunes are linked right now. And there's been a lot of sort of you know, hand-wringing and hair-pulling about why aren't more Republicans turning against Trump, criticizing him. And you can say that maybe they should – But I think the reason why they're not is very clear. They think that the success of Donald Trump would be good for them and the failure of Donald Trump as a president and even aiming more criticism at Donald Trump, which would lead to a more divided party, will end up hurting them in the 2018 midterms. And both Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan really, really want the Republican Party to do well in the 2018 midterms. And I think what we've seen is that Trump still remains enormously popular among the Republican base. He is an important figure when it comes to motivating base turnout and things like that. And so Trump really, you know, he might be motivated by personal peak to start a self-destructive war with Mitch McConnell. But when he takes a step back and thinks about it, he'll know that the absolute worst thing that could possibly happen to him is for Democrats to take control of Congress in 2018, which would mean many more serious investigations, subpoenas flying everywhere. And this is where the corruption thing plays in. If he he has a lot that Congress could really be taking a much more active role in investigating and uh, – Maybe we will see this all at war between Trump and the Republican Party. But they do have very strong uh, self-preservation incentives to avoid that.
2: Right. And I- that's ob- objectively what Trump needs is a team to make that partnership work. It seems to me that it's a it's an awkward partnership. But there's this extraordinarily powerful incentive, as as Andrew was laying out, for it to work, right, that there's no, there's no vision, I can see in which Trump is a successful president, based on triangulating away from a Democratic House majority starting in in 2019. Like, there's just no way He, he needs to be working with the House Republican caucus on things that keep them in office, you know, and like, passing enough policy to keep conservatives feeling like this is working, and also not passing things that are like, too hideously unpopular. And that just to me does not at all seem to be the John Kelly direction. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like off on some whole like wrong axis of considering what what the problem is that I think, uh Trump enjoy Trump kind of thinks it's cool how when House Democrats would come up to to DHS Secretary Kelly and be like, "Hey, why are you doing it this way?" The Kelly would just be like, "Fuck you guys, it's the law." And that's fine as far as it goes to just like brush off backbench House Democrats because sort of who cares? But in general, it's like not rare for some member of Congress to have some kind of problem with the way some agency is doing something and you normally need a more uh polite constructive sort of way of of working through these kinds of things and i don't want to say that like we don't really know because because kelly's new to this but it strikes me as telling that we are now like leaning into this like weird trump bashing of mitch mcconnell because seems like the new, you know, more, quote unquote, disciplined era does not put any kind of emphasis on this idea of like getting along with Capitol Hill people and instead has this idea of like overawing them with with tough talk. And I don't I don't see any way that that's going to work out well.
1: So I think the question here is really is Kelly in an impossible position because there is no such thing as a good chief of staff for this president, or is Kelly a uniquely bad pick for the position? I think both things are true to some extent, right? It's very clear that. The things that Donald Trump really didn't like about Rince Priebus were that Rince Priebus sometimes told him to do things he didn't want to do and sometimes told other people to do things Trump didn't want them to do. Right. Like Trump really likes it when anybody can walk into the Oval Office or he can walk into anything else. He really doesn't like any idea that his tweets should be considered you know, some kind of reflection of the policy of the federal government and should maybe be considered or at least people should be informed before he goes and, you know, bans transgender people from the military on Twitter. Those are things that no chief of staff could do that make the White House dysfunctional, right? Trump just yesterday said that he doesn't like intelligence leaks. But when there are White House leaks about who's in and who's out, that those are coming from people who just want to show how much they love him. And he's kind of honored by that. Like, That's a recipe for a dysfunctional White House. And it's something that has always been part of Trump's management style. He cultivates chaos. He cultivates people warring for his attention. But I think that Matt's also getting to something really useful, which is that Kelly is particularly allergic to politics. He really does not want to be – I mean – Everything he said during his military career was that he never wanted to be doing the exact thing that he's doing right now. And it's not clear that he's changed his mind. It appears that his honor calculus requires him to be doing this job because he thinks that it's better that he do it than that he not do it for the country. But – What that means is that Trump thinks of himself as a unique political genius. He thinks that because he pulled out this surprise election win, that he has his finger on the pulse of real America and that no one knows better than he does what is actually going to succeed politically. And. It's not clear that anyone could tell him that he's wrong about that. But John Kelly has no not only no information, but no desire to tell him that he's wrong about that, because John Kelly doesn't actually want to make arguments about what's going to work politically or not. He's when there were all these cabinet officials who were generals or ex-generals, there was this concern about military-civilian relations, Um, but... Generals think of themselves as subordinate to civilian military leadership, right? The president is the commander in chief and most successful generals, you know, in the last several decades have not been, are not successful because they tell the White House, no, we're going to do what we want to do. So it makes a certain amount of sense that John Kelly is going to see his job as taking the president's orders And, you know, making sure that they're implemented in the best way possible. But it's really hard to imagine a world where John Kelly all of a sudden now that he's in the White House goes, I'm going to get my hands dirty and do a bunch of politics because it's in the long term interest of this person who doesn't care about long term interest.
2: Make your next move with a beautiful website from Squarespace. Um, I don't know, you know, what it is you do, but if you've got a small business, if you've got a restaurant, if you're a creative professional, if you've got some kind of project or hobby that you're launching, if you just like know somebody, an organization, your community that needs a website, uh, your answer for how to build a great looking website is right here, um, and it's called Squarespace. Uh, They've got great professional templates that can make you a professionally designed, great-looking website, and it's incredibly easy to use. They've got drag-and-drop, sort of, you know, what you see is what you get. You don't need to know any code, but it's also incredibly powerful. If you do have any little kind of things you want to tip in there, uh, you can do that. They've got award-winning, 24-7 customer service, and they've got a unique domain experience that's fully transparent and simple to set up. That means, like, the the URL, the, the name for your website, they can get that for you. Uh, so it's used by everybody, uh, you know, musicians, designers, artists, restaurants, and more. It's incredibly flexible. So what you need to do uh, to check it out is you go to Squarespace and you use offer code WEEDS at checkout for 10% off your first purchase of a website and a domain. Uh, check it out. Make your next move with Squarespace.
0: There was a Politico piece yesterday that sort of explained the Trump McConnell feud by arguing that this is being driven by a desire of Trump to position himself more as an outsider again, to distance himself from the swamp and to send a message to his base that he's still, he's not, you know, a tool of Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and that he's, he wants to be seen as an outsider. And, you know, that's, that makes sense if, if to, fire the head of the RNC as your chief of staff and bring in a general with no political experience at all if you want to reposition yourself and be seen as an outsider. Furthermore, I think it also makes a lot of sense that Trump is unhappy with the political judgment and strategy of congressional Republicans so far. The it wasn't Donald Trump who told Paul Ryan to write a hideously unpopular healthcare bill and it wasn't Donald Trump who came up with the strategy that the that Congress should repeal Obamacare first and do tax reform second he said he sort of signed on to that strategy because it was presented to him by the supposed geniuses of Congress that that was the strategy most Likely to succeed, and I think he somewhat rightly feels burnt by relying on people like Ryan's Priebus, Paul Ryan, and McConnell, um, and their political strategy and advice so far, which seems to have just left him without major legislative accomplishments, and and having yoked himself to a healthcare bill that was really really toxic.
2: But this is why I, to me, the guy who Trump needed was probably Chris Christie. Right. That I think that the impulses that drove Trump in this direction makes sense, as you say, but that then it's not an effective way of addressing them. Because the problem, I think the problem as Trump has framed it, is that Priebus was like too soft on congressional Republicans and he needs to like get tough with them. But if you look at like why these things happened, right, that Trump in his intuitive Outsidery way correctly calculated that Paul Ryan's strategy on this health care was wrong that if you listen to the unfiltered Trump, like he said they should do taxes before they do health care, and he correctly assessed that this Republican health care plan was mean and would be unpopular, but Trump did not have the substantive knowledge to like effectuate his own ideas on these subjects. He seems to have gotten tricked by Paul Ryan into believing that there was some extrinsic reason that they had to do healthcare first, which isn't true. But Trump said several times that, quote unquote, statutorily, they had to do the healthcare legislation first. Like a politician would be able to tell Donald Trump, like, no, Don, like, that's not right. Like, you're right. If you want them to do tax reform first, like we should say that, we should find some backbenchers who agree with you and like have them over for supper. You know, like we should make this actually happen. Um and, and on healthcare too, he was sucked into this healthcare framework because he did not have any ability to put forward ideas, right? So you sit there, he was like he he was acting like a quote-unquote outsider in that he would offer this sideline commentary that every once in a while would pop up and be like, this is actually a terrible bill. But then he's like throwing a party on the Rose Garden to celebrate it. And, and what he needs is someone who can help him turn some of these notions into like something you could do. But instead he's brought in someone who uh, has a military background. Like he doesn't, have relevant expertise or or knowledge in any of these areas or, or self-confidence. So you're going to be stuck with the same kind of dependency, right? That even while Trump is like lobbing these Twitter grenades at Mitch McConnell, they're not doing anything to take the reins of the tax reform process and like make – this a White House led effort that will serve Trump's political agenda. They're standing back, they're hoping that Congress sorts out this budget problem. There, maybe there's going to be a tax bill, maybe there won't be. I mean, I, I kind of think Republicans can like get it together and pass a tax cut. But Trump is not like doing anything to, to make that happen. And you would never in a million years think of John Kelly as like the guy you would choose to get this done that's not at all his his professional background and there were moments when they were actually floating uh people who would be more suitable for this kind of thing like like gary Cohn. who i mean i think there were a lot of problems with but like i 100 percent believe that gary Cohn could write a tax bill um and I, I don't know what i mean beyond like generating headlines like trump's an outsider now so it's like okay trump's an outsider but like now it's monday like What what does that mean? And like, it's just still means he's waiting for bills to sign.
1: So I think the Chris Christie thing is kind of blowing my mind here. And maybe I'm misreading this. And y'all can tell me if I have totally misunderstood New Jersey politics over the last decade. But what when you're saying that Trump needed Chris Christie, you're actually saying Trump needed first term Chris Christie, right? The dude who was like, going around being a dick to teachers, but would then, you know, at the end of the session, make sure that the you know, Democratic led legislature was passing a pension reform bill and like actually, you know, getting that majority together and signing the bill. Over the course of his governorship, Chris Christie has kind of it looks like fallen in love with this idea of himself as a culture war hero, Um, you know, and is now at the point where like he, despite dismal unpopularity and total inability to get anything done, is like, fuck you guys, I'm going to this, you know, otherwise closed state beach that You know, it it almost seems as if the seductive power of being seen in media as a representative of the interests of a particular group of people and being seen as a charismatic figure is so powerful that even someone who understands the ins and outs of politics can be, you know, kind of led into believing that by sheer charisma, the things that they want to happen will happen. Or if they don't happen, they won't personally suffer the consequences of them. I think that it's actually a very useful comparison when we think about someone like Donald Trump, who didn't have any experience with the ins and outs of politics, but whose political career started with this wild, charismatic success.
0: I think uh, Christie himself is probably too damaged right now. But I think what Matt's getting at is something, some sort of person in the Christie model, someone who has, who understands politics, and yet who is not too yoked to the congressional leadership in Washington, or to um, the conservative movement in general, someone who is more of a creative thinker, and, and, and the people that come to mind from that are sort of, blue state operatives. Um, there's another guy whose name has been tossed around David Urban as a potential Trump chief of staff. He's uh, he's an operative from, I believe, Pennsylvania. And um, he's always sort of floating around out there as a possibility. And I, I do think someone like that, you know, Christie is, as you say, uh, <laughs> not exactly a uh, raging political success, but You know, there are people out there in the Republican Party who fit that description. Now, whether they would actually want to take a job with Donald Trump in the White House uh, at this point, uh, that might be a tougher sell.
1: So I think that this isn't about the merits or demerits of Chris Christie as a hypothetical White House chief of staff. I think this is about the question of... Is there anyone who can get Donald Trump to do the things he clearly needs to do for his agenda to succeed and for his medium and long term political goals at the expense of his deeply cherished commitment to impulsivity and unpredictability and to vengeance? And I think that the arc of Chris Christie is a very, you know, it's it's a morality tale about how being loved by a certain group of people and getting a lot of media coverage for being combative and impulsive can overshadow any intellectual understanding of what it actually takes to get politics done. And so, you know, I don't know if this is something in human nature, if it's something in the nature of the Republican Party right now, if this is a media thing, but I think that it's extremely optimistic to think that Donald Trump, who has, you know, inspired the feverish loyalty of some group of Americans, admittedly not as big a group as he thinks, and who has managed to, you know, succeed above the establishment of the party who is now in Congress, is going to be persuaded that anything he is doing is wrong. I mean, yeah, I mean,
2: there's obviously a big just like Trump problem. And, and in some ways, it's all just recursive because what I'm saying is that like Trump needs someone who can compensate for his weakness in substantive political knowledge, right? That if it's not Chris Christie, I mean, maybe Jan Brewer, I mean, somebody, a, a Republican governor who had a little bit of an anti-establishment streak and has some familiarity with clashing with people, but who also has familiarity with like public policy would help try, even Sarah Palin for that matter. Um, but Trump would have to acknowledge weaknesses you write like personal uh shortcomings and then pick someone who's going to help him compensate for those kind of shortcomings rather than someone who just kind of echoes personality traits that he personally kind of valorizes um but i i think that the idea of the like disciplinarian chief of staff, right? I mean, the thing that congressional Republicans want in their fantasy is a chief of staff who's going to come in and like make Trump behave. And that seems like totally, totally, totally impossible. What I do think is that you could have a president who like still does the weird tweets and stuff like that that freak people out, but who is able to weigh in have an administration that weighs in on like ongoing political controversies in a way that makes sense, right? Like one of the bizarre failures of the Trump administration is that he is not receiving legislative cooperation from the sort of four to half a dozen Senate Democrats who are holding incredibly imperiled seats in states where he's incredibly popular. And like, it's not a politics problem, right? Like he remains very popular in West Virginia, in Missouri, in North Dakota, in Indiana. The Senate Democrats who represent those states have a strong incentive to work with him on something. But he has to give them, you know, you would have to come up with something for them to work with him on, right? And his just like instinct to fight with people all the time is fine. But you just... In a world where you need 60 votes to do things and you have Democratic senators who would like to work with Donald Trump on, quote, unquote, something, you have to be able to, like, craft something for them to work with you on. Otherwise, you can't get anything done, like, just at all. And I don't – Trump is clearly frustrated by this, right? I mean he could, he could use some help, right? And that's like you got to have a meeting with Claire McCaskill and, like, work something out, do something, do a bill. Um, And instead, they're kind of like spinning their wheels. Uh, you know, if you've got a company or, or a team at a, at a bigger company, uh, you probably know that like the thing that makes or breaks your success is the talent that you're able to hire. Uh, but other people know that too, and that means it's really hard. Uh, so that's where ZipRecruiter comes in. It's it's an online job search service that makes a difference. Um, so you post your jobs with ZipRecruiter to over 100 job sites with just one click. Uh, but what's really matters is their powerful technology matches the right candidates to your job better than anyone else. So unlike other sites, they don't depend on Candidates finding you. Uh, ZipRecruiter finds them. Over 80% of jobs that are posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Uh, then, you know, the software is really great. It's useful. There's no juggling emails or calls to the office. You can screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place, off their dashboard. Uh, so, so here's what you need to know if you're interested. Um, find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Uh, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. For free. Yes, it's free. You just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. One more time, try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. Can we dive a a little more, Andrew, into this? Like, what do you think is going on with Mitch McConnell? Uh,
0: Well, I think that, you know, rather than actually putting together a strategy to do the things that you have just laid out, Donald Trump has decided that instead the thing to do is to start tweaking Mitch McConnell a little bit. Uh, It was actually McConnell who started this feud. Uh, He said in Kentucky on Monday that um, the new president had unrealistic expectations about how quickly things could get done in our democratic process. He hasn't been in this line of work before. And Trump apparently saw those comments being played on TV a lot and got very angry. And First, his social media director sent a tweet at McConnell, and then his sort of unofficial social media director, Sean Hannity, sent a tweet at McConnell, also criticizing him, saying that he had betrayed conservatives. And then Trump himself started, in the mode of his criticism of Jeff Sessions, uh, tweeting that McConnell had failed him on repeal and replace and... He hadn't gotten anything done. And then when um, he did a press pool spray yesterday, uh, he said that if McConnell failed to pass health care taxes and infrastructure, then you should ask him whether McConnell should step down. And so in one sense, this feud is a little fake. Um, Trump just endorsed Senator Luther Strange, who's running in an Alabama special election next week. And uh this is he is the candidate out of the top three that McConnell desperately, desperately wants to win. He uh is an appointed incumbent, but the real problem is that the other two candidates in the race are have reputations for being total renegades. And
2: they've tried to position themselves as like the authentic Trumpy candidate against the McConnell Stooge candidate. Trump yeah, is so, backing the McConnell
0: stooge. Yeah. So it, it would have potentially been a way for Trump to send a message to um, all of Congress to endorse one of the challengers and try to prove his ability to swing a primary election. But instead, he's playing ball and and doing McConnell a solid and endorsed Luther Strange and is hoping that he can win. Uh, beyond that, I don't know, it, it it's just, as I mentioned before, there are just such really, really powerful reasons for McConnell and Trump not to have a real falling out. Um, McConnell could make Trump's life very difficult when it comes to getting his nominees confirmed, um, you know, crafting legislation, and the investigations. And uh, then Trump could also make McConnell's life really difficult because Trump is more popular than Mitch McConnell among conservatives and Kentucky is a very conservative state where Trump is quite popular. McConnell isn't up for re-election until 2020, but you could envision a world where a disappointed Trump um, you know keeps needling these criticisms, maybe not even totally endorsing a primary challenger to McConnell, but at least sending the message to the Trump base that, the majority leader has failed, and it's time for new blood, and and that sort of thing could be a real problem for McConnell. Um, that's three years down the road. We have no idea what uh, politics will look like then. But but it does seem that you know McConnell has chosen to pretend all year that he's living in a world where the president has no scandals and no tweets, and he's been trying to sort of keep his eye on the ball and advance the conservative agenda as best he can. And this sort of thing, if Trump is really serious about trying to position himself as an outsider, that could be a problem for Mitch McConnell's efforts to get things he wants done too.
1: To what extent is this a problem that the Republican Party has created for itself? I mean, I remember in like 2010, when the National Republican Senatorial Committee would like pointedly not get involved in party primaries when their incumbents were being challenged from the right. And, you know, this was at the time a big difference from the Democratic Party, which was very pro-incumbent. And I, you know, what kind of position does it put the rest of the party in if you have a president who is affirmatively endorsing challengers to incumbents in Congress who are backed by their colleagues? And is that is that something that, you know, the NRSC could could put an end to? Or is, it, is, is this going to hold the party as an institution hostage to the personalities of Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump?
0: I mean, I think the only real precedent of this that I can think of is when in 1938, when FDR was frustrated with a bunch of conservative Southern Democrats uh, who weren't voting for His big new bills and decided to campaign against them, and he failed miserably. It turned out that they understood politics in their state better than Franklin Delano Roosevelt did. But I think uh, I'm not sure. It's it's difficult to see how this will play out. You know, Trump's already been bleeding his base from earlier in the year. His his strong approval rating has dropped. His actual approval rating has dropped because, you know, people who used to say they approved of him in January um, are uh, increasingly fewer of them are still doing so. So, you know, if that continues to happen in 2020 and even next year for the round of primaries that come up, uh, Jeff Flake is another Trump critic in Arizona. He just wrote a book about why Trump is bad and uh, the White House has supposedly been exploring Uh, backing a challenger to flake and one of Trump's biggest uh, financial backers um, Robert Mercer is now reportedly putting some money into a super PAC to challenge flake so you know we could see some really interesting conflicts here and in part that is because Trump does have this big megaphone and he still is quite popular um, among the people who vote In Republican primaries. And that strength hasn't really been tested yet. We haven't really seen whether Trump can wade into a primary, take down an incumbent who he criticizes as being insufficiently disloyal. But that threat is out there and it is hanging over um, many people in the Republican Party right
2: now. I mean, an interesting thing if if Trump were to try it is that this is one of these weird things in american politics where fdr definitely tried it in 1938 it definitely failed and since then nobody has done it uh because of this this record of failure at the same time i think it's fairly obvious that a lot has changed about american politics and party dynamics since 1938 um and the world has been i think on some level waiting for someone a, a self-perceived outsider, a rogue, disruptive actor who's going to be like, you know what, just because trying to back liberal primary challengers in the Deep South didn't work for FDR three generations ago, like it doesn't follow that this won't work in Arizona in 2018, right? Like, it's a, it's a thing where sometimes Trump bucks things that are really, really well established, and it clearly blows up in his face. Other times, I would say Trump puts to the test aspects of conventional wisdom that are just based on very flimsy evidence. We we saw that in the primary that Trump showed that you know, you can run a successful primary campaign that's just based on kind of national media exposure, doing rallies that you don't need elaborate levels of local organization.
0: You don't but, need the party to decide.
2: Right. But I mean, in in such fundamental ways, right, it's not just that the party doesn't decide, but that like, you don't need to court the big donors, you barely need to do anything. But uh, if people hear your message, and they like it, and this idea that presidents can't drive primary challenges to incumbents like it is true that that's what all of the evidence says but it's like still almost no evidence and it would be interesting to see someone actually try it out the fact that trump's numbers keep slipping month after month makes it seem you know dicier than than it might otherwise kind of be but um you know though at times terrifying i would say trump has been often a uh, informative sort of figure for students of politics because he's interested in trying things that uh, are a little bit different. And I would be very excited to see him give this a try. But so far in Alabama, he's, uh, he's selling out and uh, getting behind Luther Strange. So with that, I think uh should wrap it up. Thanks to uh, Dara and Andrew for joining me. Uh, thanks to producer Bert Pinkerton and Riyad Shawi, our engineer. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back next week.